Stand with me out of love and reverence for God's word. I'll be in Ephesians chapter 5, reading verses 15 to 21. Hear now God's word, for God does indeed speak to us through it. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray that he would bless it. Father, we do pray that you would help us to make the most even of this time that we have And we implore you to give us your spirit that I might speak clearly and boldly and truthfully. We pray for your spirit that we would hear well, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of your word. We pray that you would give us a heart of wisdom that we might glorify you and enjoy you. When we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The classic song, The Cats in the Cradle, offers a haunting look at the uh, effects of busyness on our life and uh, the relentless drive of our, of our lives. The, the lyrics go something like this. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it, and as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be just like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I've got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but the smile never dimmed. It said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know I'm going to be like him. And then fast forward to the end. I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Beloved, time is the enemy of us all. Our God has made us temporal beings in his wisdom. That is, we are part of not just space, but time. And just the beat of life just continues at a relentless pace. And uh, everything seems to fight for our time. Like Sometimes it seems like life is this game of time management, of trying to figure out what is, what is the right use of our time. And it's not just um, our families and our work. It's not just sleep and exercise. It's not just the spiritual pursuits of being a member of the body of Christ. It's the interruptions. It's the distractions. It's the, the time wasters. All these things that waste, that take away these moments and minutes of our lives that we never get back. And to make matters worse, we don't know how long 
we truly have. Our time is fixed. Our God has fixed it. But in his wisdom, he has not revealed to us how much time we have. You know, one day we will stand before him, and what we, when it's all said and done, want to hear is, well done. Well done. But in order to hear that, we need to live wisely in the midst of the time that our God has given to us. And I think that's what Paul would have us learn from this passage, is simply this. Because the days are evil, we must be careful to live wisely. Because the days are evil, we must be careful to live wisely. And we'll split this passage into two parts. The first is a wise perspective in verses 15 to 16, and the second is wise practice in verses 17 to 21. So he starts with the perspective, and he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He's, he's talking about, look carefully how you walk. And it's synonymous as how you live. That's how we walk, how we live, has been an important theme for Paul throughout the book of Ephesians. Um, and so with all the glorious doctrines that he's given us in this book and throughout Scripture, it's not just a matter of understanding, but it's a matter of how we live it out. True understanding will and must uh, change the way that we live. And he says, then, look carefully how you walk. That's the command. Um, it's not, as one commentator said, we, we can't live these lives where we just relax and hope for the best. The command is to look how we walk, to look carefully, to evaluate, to determine whether it is uh, pleasing to God. And then he says, not as unwise, but as wise. And obviously what he's talking about there is God's wisdom. There is a wisdom of this world, and then there's God's wisdom. And some of the wisdom of this world will uh, fit with God's wisdom, but we must evaluate even the wisdom that we, we receive. Is it in accordance with God's wisdom? Is it practical wisdom that, that fits with that? And notice that God's wisdom is inherently practical because if we're to live wisely, it's going to affect the way we live. So it's practical. And the reason he gives why we must live wisely is, says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Um, some other translations, instead of saying making the best use of the time, your translation might say redeeming the time. The, the phrase there is actually literally something like buy the time, purchase, like purchase, like a financial transaction. Now, I've personally always heard that to mean essentially, you know, our days are short, our life moves fast, so we need to be very careful to, to make the most of our time that we have. And that certainly is a biblical concept. Um, Psalm 39 says this. He says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. You know, our, for those of us who are parents, we know time moves like this. You know, the, I, it was just yesterday that my, my children were infants 
and now they're leaving the home. Time flies by, personally and even as we watch uh, other people. So that, that's, a, that's a true thing, but I think there's something more to it, um, what Paul's trying to get at. He says, making the best, best use of the time because the days are evil. Uh, there's a theme throughout Ephesians in particular where Paul is talking about being in the midst of an evil age, that we are in a time uh, on this side of glory where uh, evil and wickedness is present and we are caught in this time. Um, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, um, I am sending you like sheep among wolves. So therefore be innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. So we are in the midst of wickedness. God has left his people in the midst of an evil age where there is wickedness abounding, and so we're called to live wisely so that we might be faithful and we might be found faithful. But it's not even just uh, faithfulness that we're called to. It's not just a protective measure because of the evil age, but he says, buy the time, redeem the time. There's a, there's a positive element that we are called to bring. Um, we, are, we are called as God's people, as the children of light, to bring good in the midst of the evil. As if we're trying to, uh, in the midst of this evil age, convert some of it to good. Um, it, is, it is the light of Christ worked out by the wisdom of God in the people of God. And it's that whole, we are a city on a hill. You are, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. God is blessing people in this age as we live out uh, God's wisdom um, through God's people. And so he's bringing blessing and good. But time is indeed fleeting. That we can't deny. Even if... Uh, you know, the Lord should not return in the next hundred years, which I sure hope that he does. But if he does not, then I expect that every one of us here will die. And we don't know if we have one more day or if we have a hundred more years. And the, the charge is for us to live wisely and to make the most of the time, the best use of the time. And that led uh, the, probably the greatest American theologian uh, named Jonathan Edwards to write this when he was 19 years old. He said, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve upon it the most profitable way I possibly can. Not a single moment. And our time is fleeting, but have, have you considered the blessing of the fact that our time is fleeting? I mean, we understand the curse well. We fear death, or even worse than that, we fear what comes right before death, the sickness, the loss of our minds, you know, failing of our bodies, saying goodbye to loved ones, things like that. And that's a great evil, but there's great blessing too, because we live in an evil age. And can you imagine how horrific it would be if God were to grant us immortal life in this age, in an age where there is murder and hate and wickedness and pervasive sin and a, and a, a failure to worship the one true and living God? 
there comes a day where we will have eternal life, but it is in an age that has been prepared for those whom God loves, where there is no sin or sadness or sickness or any such thing. And so there's great grace that we are not left in this age. And not only that, I mean, think of God's grace that he would not just rescue people out of this evil age, but that he would plant them in the midst of this world, that he might show his kindness through us, even to people who will ultimately be objects of his eternal wrath. And beloved, that's you and me. Part of our responsibility and our, the gift we have been given in Christ Jesus is to be a blessing to those who are perishing, even in this life. That is part of using our time wisely. And so we must use our time wisely. We must look carefully how we walk, not to be unwise, but to be as wise. So he gives us this perspective, but then he, in his grace, teaches us how to live with wise practice. Now, students, um, when you're going through God's word, it's helpful to find patterns um, because patterns, patterns help us understand things, but also to remember and hopefully you remember the pattern, as Elder Broom had mentioned, that we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, that pattern was put off and put on. It was there over and over again. We have a similar pattern here in this passage. Do you see it? And the pattern is this. Not this, but that. It's there in verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then in verse 17, therefore, not, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then in verse 18, do not get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. It's not this, but that. And the first one gives us that wise perspective. The second two gives us the wise practice. He starts off saying, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This concept of a fool or foolishness is pervasive in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, particularly Proverbs, which we read through the reading of the word. And we could define it simply here as um, somebody who does not understand God's will and lives for their own self-gratifying pleasure. See what he says. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We become wise by understanding the will of the Lord. And it's not just a cognitive or a mental understanding of God's will, but it is an understanding that transforms our lives into right living. And how do we understand God's will? Well, I would say primarily two ways, and they work hand in hand. One is through God's word, we understand God's will, um, but even more to a point by looking at his son, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, seeing everything, yes and amen, in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the first way, not being, un, uh, not being foolish. But the second practice is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the um, great 20th, 20th century preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sees this as the stimulus of the Spirit or the stimulus of wisdom. If you compare those two, uh, drunkenness and the Spirit, 
Um, if you were to categorize drunkenness or alcohol, it is a depressant. It is something that uh, dulls the mind. It causes an inhibitions to be removed so that you're living not with godliness, but more in line with debauchery. It makes you sleepy. It uh, makes you stumble physically because it is removing those uh, those higher level functions of your brain. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician before he was a preacher, and he, he saw these connections. But the spirit is not a depressant, but a stimulant. The spirit is the one that enlivens the heart and the mind. This is by the spirit of Christ that we get the mind of Christ, that we or have the mind of Christ, that we can understand what God's will is, so that we can understand his revealed will, so that we can walk in a manner that is worthy of him. And it's even by the Spirit of Christ that we are able to look carefully and evaluate correctly. So the Spirit is a stimulus for right living, for um, godly wisdom. And notice what the command is, is it says, um, don't get drunk, but be filled be filled. It's a, uh, it's a command, but it's in the passive tense. Not, he doesn't say, fill yourself with the Spirit, and he couldn't say that because the Spirit of God fl- uh, goes, blows where it will. And yet, um, remember that in the book of Ephesians, Paul has said a few things about the Spirit that are true. He says that God has given his Spirit to his people as an, a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is ours. And he's also said that it is by the Spirit that we are being built up into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. And so we have the Spirit, and yet the command is to be filled with the Spirit. And I think this is uh, yet another one of those collisions in God's Word where, God, or, where Paul is basically saying, be who you are, or grow up into that which is already yours. It is a collision of God's absolute sovereignty in giving his spirit, but also God's plan to work these purposes out through the faithfulness of his people. And so he commands us to do it, and he gives us the will to do it even as he does it. And then he gives some necessary results of being filled with the Spirit. There are four um, subordinate clauses, if you want to get technical, that, can, that show what Paul has in mind with respect to filling in the Spirit. There's fellowship, uh, singing, giving thanks, and submitting. There in verse 19 to 21. The first one is fellowship. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So uh, the majority of commentators um, have stated that despite our best attempts to try to clearly delineate these three different terms, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, it's a mistake to try to come up with any kind of clear division. These are, these are songs of God's grace and power and might and majesty that are either part of the canon of Scripture or are testifying to the truth of God's Word uh, as given to us in Scripture. Um, that's what these songs are. But what's interesting is that he, uh, Paul says uh, it's, 
It says addressing one another. It literally in Greek, it is speaking these things to one another. It's not singing, it's speaking. And so it's, it's, it's as if Paul is saying that um, by God's grace, being filled with the Spirit necessarily means that we have been given a new song of joy and delight in God uh, as revealed in his word. And that is so part of us that as we speak in fellowship with one another, as we encourage one another, even as we speak to one another in the world, that's how we communicate with that, that type of language. Uh, the second one is worshipful singing. He says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This would be singing with song. If that, that, uh, these, these songs are in our heart, it's, they're bubbling up into a joyful noise. And these two, these two words, uh, singing and making melody, these are the verb forms of the words song and psalm. It's as if Paul is saying, uh, uh, songing and psalming to the Lord with all of your heart. It's so, so part of your being that you know, we can't help but gather together to sing God's praise. When he says... Uh, making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Obviously, not, it's not what he's saying is that we're doing it in our heart, like we talk about often praying silently or in our heart. This is, a, this is a joyful noise. The point is that it's from from our heart when we sing. You know, Often when we sing the songs that we do, we just scan over the words mindlessly, try, just trying to keep up with you know, the tempo and, and the notes. But what Paul would exhort us to do is that, to let these, these things, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, as we read from Colossians 3, so that it bubbles up into genuine worship, genuine praise. Not mindless, but true, heartfelt praise. The third characteristic of this spirit-filled uh, wisdom is giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a heart of thankfulness for all that God has done. It's a recognition of who we are and the wonderful grace that we've received in Christ Jesus. But notice how he breaks it down. He says, giving thanks always. It's a, a continual thanksgiving. It's a heart that is a posture that is always grateful for God's grace to us. Giving thanks always and for everything now, granted, that does not mean literally everything, because God hates evil. God hates wickedness. We're not giving thanks to God for evil or wickedness. But we can give thanks to God uh, that he is greater than any evil and that he works out his glorious purposes even in the midst of evil and wickedness. Um, it's, it's a thankfulness that is to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so thankfulness must characterize us. And then the final one is submission. Submission to the authorities that have been placed over us. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this last verse, there's two prevailing interpretations for what Paul means when he says, submitting to one another. The first one is that Paul is saying that what, what we must do is every Christian is called to submit to every other Christian, ought to be a, 
a heart posture of reciprocal or mutual submission in each and every relationship. That's one. Uh, the second one is that that's not what he's talking about, what, but what he's um, preparing to do is to talk, he's basically exhorting us that for the authority structures that have been placed in our lives, we are called to submit to those. So it's not everyone to everyone, but a call to submit to those authorities that have been placed over us. And it's the second one that I think we, we need to accept as correct. And I'll give you three brief reasons why. The first is the word that Paul uses for submitting literally means something to the effect of uh, ordered or arrange under, which I know that means that, that, that seems weird. But what the, the point is that um, it was there's such a thing as an ordered array. So think of a, um, a military unit where you have commanders and soldiers underneath. It is a there's a structure where there have authorities that are placed over. It's an ordered structure. And to array under means to take that gaggle of soldiers and to put them in the proper structure as that authority structure has been put in place. That's what the word is, uh, is often used and usually used in. Um, the second uh, reason why is because of what follows. And we'll look at this over the next few weeks, but what's coming after is what was called the household code. And the household code has three different pairings that give examples of this authority structure that God has established that he calls us to be ordered under and, and follow, fall into place. First, there are wives submit to husbands as their authority. Children obey their parents and slaves or bond servants obey your masters. He is establishing those, that authority structure and upholding it. Now, nowhere in scripture, nowhere in scripture is the order reversed where husbands are called to submit to wives, or parents are called to submit to their children or masters to their servants. It is true, that, as we'll see, that God gives commands to those in authority, to husbands, to parents, and to masters. But those commands do not confuse that authority structure, but rather uphold it. Okay? And the third, third reason is um, it's really a response to the objection that when Paul says, well, it says submitting to one another, well, obviously that must mean a reciprocal type of relationship. And the response to that is, there, it is true that in Scripture that one another is used in a reciprocal type of thing often, but there are also a number of situations where that term is used where it cannot mean a mutual or reciprocal type of response. And I'll give you two examples. One is in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, where Luke records that the people were trampling one another. Now, if we're going to envision a mutual trampling one of another, we have a humorous image of something going on. But even more to the point, in, Re in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, John says that there's something coming where people are slaying one another. Now, obviously, it, the point is not there's a concurrent or slaying where people are killing each other at exactly the same time. 
And if one person is slayed, then they're not going to be able to slay each other. The point is that the people are slaying those around them. So it's not necessarily a reciprocal type of thing. The bottom line is this. God has established authority structure, even in the household. And if we're going to submit to God's word, we submit to that fact. And we are called with the Spirit to submit to those authorities that have been placed over us. All right. So as we kind of dig into this passage, just a couple, two key applications that I want to draw out. Um, the first one is with respect to drunkenness. Now, notice Paul does not say, uh, he says, and do not drink wine, but he says, do not get drunk with wine. It's not don't drink, but don't get drunk. There is an appropriate use of God's gifts always, and there is an inappropriate and sinful and idolatrous use. And throughout Scripture, Scripture testifies of the fact that alcohol is a gift of God. The psalmist says that wine gladdens the heart of man. Uh, we have reason to believe that Jesus himself consumed alcohol because he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. So the command's not that we must not drink, but um, the, the command is that we need to exercise self-control. And just because we have the freedom to drink doesn't mean that we must drink, but we must exercise self-control. And for some of us, we have drunkenness in our past, and it, and it is wise uh, to practice abstinence when it comes to alcohol because that is the best way to exercise self-control. Um, but for others of us that can exercise self-control and still partake, even then, we really have to ask ourselves the question, what, what is fueling our drive to consume alcohol? Is it um, a means of coping with stress? Is it um, an idolatrous pursuit of pleasure? Um, a way to take the edge off our day? Are we looking to it as a, a source of salvation from some sort of problem that we are in the midst of? And we have to be really careful because alcohol is not a good savior. Only the Lord Jesus is a good savior. But there is a, a proper way to do it. But if we do then whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we all have to do it for the glory of God. And so we have to be mindful of that and wise. But the second uh, application is to look carefully how you live. Look carefully how you live and pursue concrete ways to use your time wisely. Um, often I think we just want to live life and hope for the best. But the command to us is look carefully. Look carefully. And I think that means four things. The first is awareness. First thing we, we're called to do is to look. Do an evaluation. How do you use your time? As one commentator said, are you a time waster or a time redeemer? A lot of our phones have these reports of how much time we use and they're terrifying every Sunday every Sunday morning I see it and I'm 
I'm very disappointed about how I use my time on my phone. How much time do you use on your phone, on your computer, on the TV? How much time do you spend on work versus your family, on spiritual pursuits? And a lot of times we don't really want to look because we're ashamed of what we think we'll be ashamed of what we'll see. But here's the point, friends, is that data is helpful to shine the light on things that, is going, that are going on in our hearts. And it's much better for us to be ashamed now when we can make changes than ashamed standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, the second thing, once we have awareness, is make a plan. You have 24 hours a day and seven days a week. No more, no less. Make a plan for how you want to use it. Consider how you will wisely use your time. I would suggest thinking long range, maybe a year, a week, maybe a day plan. Come, come up with those plans and develop balance. Care for your body and your spirit. Figure out how much time you want to spend on work versus your family versus your church family. And remember what he says. He says, um, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. So the time that we have is a gift from our God. It is his time. He is the God over all time. So that means if it's a gift given to us, then we must steward it. So just as we might make a budget of our finances, if we have limited finances, we have limited time. We must budget that. And we ought to pray through our plan, like, like we read in our law passage, teach us to number our days. Teach us, Lord, teach me how I ought to spend my time. How I ought to spend my time. Because we, sp we can waste our time by doing the wrong things, but we can also waste our time by trying to do too much or doing things that God hasn't called us to do. We need to prune those things out of our lives. Remember, we have been given a commandment, remember the Sabbath day. So our God commands us to do and to work, but he also calls us to rest. It's an important aspect of God's will, how he would have us live, is to rest. So after planning, then the, the next and probably the hardest part is exercise self-control. And that's really the hardest, really hardest part. Because, um, but, you know, all the evaluation, all the planning, that time is wasted if we don't actually follow through with our plan. And to that point, remember... Our sin wastes time. You know, the time that we spend not doing what God calls us to actually ends up wasting time in the long run. Now, the example I always think of is, for us who have kids, might recognize that God, God has called us to discipline our children, but sometimes we don't want to take the time to actually do that in the moment. But the net result, if we don't do it in the moment, if we don't aren't diligent to be faithful with that, we spend way too much time dealing with that in the future. Or if we have conflicts with our brothers, that results in stress and ongoing conflicts, which waste more time. That sin is foolishness, which wastes our time. If we submit ourselves to God and do what he calls us to do, we redeem that time and uh, live in a way that's pleasing to him. But friends, also remember, you know, our self-control, self-control is such a dirty word to us because it's so hard and that's where the rubber meets the road. But recognize that your salvation does not depend on your self-control. 
Your salvation doesn't depend on you using every moment wisely. Your salvation depends on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ used every nanosecond of his life for your salvation. That he did everything. And he had a shorter life than many of us who are here. But he did everything that the Lord called him to do. And we rest in that. And yet being set free from his perfection, he's given us the charge to live wisely and to walk in such a way. And that's the, the, the fourth and final point is once we exercise that self-control, remember God's providence. God is sovereign. Um, Proverbs says, in a man's heart he makes his plans, but the Lord determines the steps. It's right for us to make our plans and to pursue our plans and to seek to understand God's will, but we understand God's will sometimes in the way that our plans don't work out. And we need to hold our plans with an open hand and say, Lord, lead me. I want to be faithful and to pursue it. In the classic novel, The Hobbit, uh, the creature Gollum tries to stump Bilbo Baggins with this riddle about time. He says, this thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins towns, and beats high mountain down. The answer to that really was time, of course. Time marches on. It, it brings everything to an end. And yet one time, time itself will end, beloved. One day, our God will usher us into a period, a new day, where we do have immortal life. Where every day will be lived to his glory and praise and delight and on the day when we face our maker, may we hear those glorious words. Well done. Well done. And so look carefully that we might be wise and that our God might get all the glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word which teaches us and instructs us and corrects us and rebukes us. Give us a heart of wisdom. Help us to grow in these things. Forgive us for how we've wasted so much time, yet we trust in your goodness and your grace, and we, we cling to Christ and his perfection. Help us to walk in the way that he has set before us and in the light of his grace, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.